Well, welcome back. Welcome back. Let me uh, tell you what exactly we're going to do for Mother's Day text today. It's really super spiritual. I really sought this out. It's actually the back half of Luke 19. <laughs> you guys are joking. My joke is it's just the continuation of what we did last week, which is Luke 19. So if you're here for the first time, we're just going verse by verse, chapter by chapter, New Testament on Sundays, Old Testament on Wednesdays. But really, moms, if you think about what we're about ready to talk about, and you're going to go, you're going to scratch your heads. The triumphal entry, which is what we're going to speak on today, is I'll just say it this way, and then we'll come back. If I, don't, if I don't tie this together, I know Catherine will remind me. It's how we're going to hold it together. How do we hold it together? How do we keep going when the circumstances are tough? I think triumphal entry tells us that. And you're saying, really? Well, let's see. Let me read to you. Uh, the end, the, the rest of uh, chapter 19, beginning at verse 28, or read with you, not to you, with you, as you follow along. So if you need a Bible, raise your hand. Xander will get you one. You're going to want to follow along uh, if you need a Bible. There you go, right there. Xander will bring it to you. And we're going to start in Luke 19, right here in the middle, uh, verse 28. Let me just remind you where we are. Can I remind you where we are? In the story of Jesus now, in 32 AD, we are at the Sunday before his death on Friday. That, that's where we are. Luke 19, verse 28, that's where we are. Jesus has just begun traveling from Jericho in the Judean wilderness, the city of palms, the aromatic city that's beautiful in commerce, driven because it's a great passageway up to Jerusalem, a beautiful city. And Jesus was there and came in contact. I can't believe it, really. You, you can't believe it with me that he would spend time, that he would spend time taking care of people or listening to people as he marches to his death. <laughs> he had time always for people. Really, what we're about ready to read is the culmination of Luke chapter 9, verse 51. Maybe you want to turn there or just listen to me. When a Samaritan village, Samaria is way up in the north of Israel, when a Samaritan village rejects Jesus, there in verse 51, it says, Now it came to pass when the time had come for him to be received up, here it comes, that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. This is his march to Jerusalem. That's what we've been reading about and studying about. And we're all the way there now. He's entering Jerusalem for the time and the purposes for which he was, or which he came to earth, which he was incarnated. 
Remember, back in verse 19, or chapter 19, verse 10, you get the whole summation of Jesus' mission. In John 1, we're told his relative, John the Baptist, says, Behold, the Lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world. That's the, that's the mission of Jesus. Then Jesus himself says his mission in Luke 19, verse 10, which it says, For the Son of Man, that's Jesus, has come to seek and to save that which was lost. There it is. That's the mission of the Bible, folks. That's the whole Bible in one little verse. Jesus coming to reconcile men and women, boys and girls, to the Father. That's the Bible. It's the whole story. And here we are right in the heart of it. And last time, we, he went through Jericho. He paid attention and brought Jesus into the family, or Jesus, brought Zacchaeus into the family of God. What a beautiful story. And then he tells this parable of these minas or minas, however you want to say it. And it's this parable about this owner who goes away, and while he's away, he gives a talent to each of his people or servants. He gives one to each, different than the other parable about giving different, remember this, different, different amounts. That's in the book of Matthew and then goes away. This is one where he says, you're all going to get the same thing, one minor. And we said, well, that has to be or must be the gospel. All of us sitting here have been given the gospel. The gospel, the good news, the good news that we're sinners we deserve spiritual death. Ezekiel tells us that the soul that sins shall surely die. So the whole Bible, from the prophets and everywhere, from the beginning of the Bible, shows us that there's something wrong with us. We're sinners by, natures and by, by nature and by deed, and the penalty for sin is death, spiritual separation. And the whole Bible is this amazing drama of good versus evil for God to restore men back to the place where they were intended to be walking with God in the garden. We can walk with him and we can talk with him and he tells us that we're his own. Isn't that touching? We can do that through Jesus. That's the story of the Bible. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. And he says, this really hit me this week, man. And I asked myself, I asked myself this during the days. Did I do business as he is waiting to come back to the Lord? Where do I, what do you mean? Well, if you look down in verse 13 of chapter 19, he told his servants to do business, his business, until he comes back. We all have the gospel, whether you're Billy Graham or the pastor or the Sunday school teacher or the person who puts the chairs up or whatever you do at the church or however you serve, you all, we all have the gospel of Jesus Christ. What are we doing with it? Are we doing business till he comes? I have to say, I look sometimes at the American church and it seems to say that the sign on the window is we're closed. Not a lot of people do business, the Lord's business. We do a lot of entertaining, fun stuff get people in the door type of things. But the Lord's business, and the Lord's business is the gospel. He also tells us that we all have 24 hours in a day. We're to redeem the time, invest the time, not waste it. And so I've been asking myself this week, am I doing business? 
as we're waiting for the return. He told us this. And this made the religious people and some others mad because he said the ones who hide that mina, that thing that's been given to them, or waste their time, uh, he's got some harsh words for them. Not, not me, but him in verse 27. He says, but bring here those enemies of mine. He calls people who are wasting time. Oof. Enemies. Remember this? Jesus said in the book of Revelation, I'd rather you be totally cold or totally hot for me rather than lukewarm. I would just vomit you out of my mouth for lukewarmness because lukewarmness sends a mixed signal to people that I never want to give, Jesus says. Isn't that amazing? And the funny part about this Mina business is, See, I grew up to think I was going to work, make tons of money, and then just get into retirement and get on the golf course and live out my life. But the more we do business for him, look at this, the more he gives us to do. What a blessing. We never retire in the Christian life. So you and I, we need the zeal of the Lord. We need grace imparted to us, his actual life imparted to us. We can't just manufacture this stuff to keep zealous and keep going. We need the Lord himself, his resource, pouring his, his life out in us as we meet with him daily, as we worship him, as we spend time in prayer and praise. The Lord fills us afresh with his life so that we can go out and serve and love those who are unlovable even. He said another thing through this parable, I think, it's the thing that makes life purposeful. What you do here <laughs> echoes into eternity. You'll be the ruler over cities. Some of us would take Maui. <laughs> Telluride, I'll take that one. West Elizabeth, I mean, in, the, in eternity, as we rule and reign with the Lord, as he comes back to this earth, as he rule, he's going to utilize us. I can't believe it, but he's going to. And, and what we do now echoes and matters for then. I didn't say it, he said it. Isn't that beautiful? So now after he's done that, we get to verse 28. He's been in Jericho, and he's marching the 17 miles up the hill. It's about a 3,000-foot elevation gain, over 17 miles. And when he had said this, verse 28, chapter 19, he went on ahead. I want you to circle that. Don't miss that. I probably, if I was him, just being honest, would probably have been in the back. Ugh. He goes ahead of them. But anyway, he goes on ahead, going up to Jerusalem, and it came to pass when he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mountain called Olivet, that he sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village opposite you, where as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. File this away. In, in another gospel, it says there's a mama donkey and the colt. We'll talk about that in a minute on which no one has ever sat. That's really important to the story about how we're going to hold it together. You're like, what? 
loose it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you loosing it? Thus you shall say to him, because the Lord, this is astounding, has need of it. So those who were sent went their way and found it, just as he had said to them. But as they were loosing the colt, the owners of it said to them, just as he had said to them, get it? He just told them they would encounter people who were going to say, why are you loosing the colt? Verse 34. And they said, well, the Lord has need of him. And then they brought him to Jesus and they threw their own clothes on the colt and they sat Jesus on him. And as he went, many spread their clothes on the road. Then, as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, and now he's quoting from the Old Testament, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the religious leaders or Pharisees The Pharisees called to him from the crowd. They tried to call him out. Do you see this? Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Hmm. Wow. Now, as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave you in one Uh, one stone upon another, because you did not know the time of your visitation. Then he went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in it. This is the second time in Jesus's ministry that he goes into the temple and drives out people who are distorting the image of God. First one is in the book of John. Here at the end of his life in Luke He goes into the temple, begins to drive out those who bought and sold in it, saying to them, it's written, my house, my house, isn't that interesting, is a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. And he was teaching daily in the temple, astounding folks. We don't remember this, I don't think, during the last week of his life. He's teaching in the temple. But the chief priests, the scribes, And the leaders of the people sought to destroy him and were unable to do anything, for all the people were very attentive to hear him. Now, hold on, time out for a minute. Turn over to the book of John, chapter 11. I want you to see one of the parallel accounts. Look in verse 55 of chapter 11, which is right before this same account of Jesus going down to the Mount of Olives or going over to the Mount of Olives and then down into the temple. Look at this. And the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went from the country up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. You know that there would have been two million or so people in and around Jerusalem Josephus tells us during the Passover, listen to this now, listen, listen. Josephus, extra-biblical writer, historian, 
who was Jewish but defected and became the, like the historian of the Romans, so was kind of hated. He's not exaggerating here. He's telling us what he saw. During the Passover times, there would be over, listen, listen, 265,000 lambs brought to the slaughter. So now the Passover of the Jews is near, and many went from the country up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. And then they sought Jesus and spoke among themselves as they stood in the temple. What do you think, that he will not come to the feast? Now both the, listen, the religious leaders, the chief priests, and the Pharisees had given a command that if anyone knew where he was, he should report it that they might seize him because they have a diabolical end for Christ. They want to kill him. Now listen, folks. You all do this. I know you do this. You read the preceding parts of the gospel, and every time Jesus tells somebody, don't tell him what I did, all of you say, why did he do that? You scratch your head. You're like, whoa, why did he do that? Who here has ever said that? I've said it. Oh, wow, okay. (laughs) We've said it. Why would he tell them not? Because they see, we'll talk about this in a minute. There's a particular day that Jesus knew he was going to give himself up to be killed. And that day is what we're studying today. In other words, listen to this. He knows the environment of the religious community in Israel is against him. He knows that they're bloodthirsty. In fact, we said last week, did we not, that the book of John tells us that Jesus knows what is in every man or woman. He knows what he knows. He knew the climate. And before, he had told people, be quiet, shh. I, 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 I am the Messiah, but we don't do it until I say so. Jesus was completely under control here. Don't look at Jesus as, as I say, like the wheels falling off and he got caught and now he's walking to his death. No, Jesus is in control of the time and the circumstances. They think he's the one on trial. He's putting mankind on trial. That's what this is telling you. Because as we look at Luke, it says when he had said this, Remember, Luke 9.51 tells us he had decided that he was going to go to Jerusalem. Here it says he had gone on ahead. Can you imagine? (laughs) He's out front, marching up the hill. When I hike with Jan, I have this bad tendency to get excited about what's around the next corner, and I go ahead. Think about that. Here's the one who's going to die. And he knows that his people are behind him. And he goes out front. Like this great, let's just say it, military leader. They don't lead from the back. Man, I just watched the first part of Saving Private Ryan the other night. Oh, God bless those people. And what was Tom Hanks doing? I know it's a movie, but, you know, these were real people. He was leading his people up that beach, knowing that at any second, 
What heroism. What a hero those men were. What Jesus is, he's a hero. He leads out front like a, like a military man or look, like a great shepherd. Knowing that there's going to be danger and chaos and hurt and death and all that, and he wants to help and save and bring his people along, but he wants to keep them protected. If anybody gets hurt, I do. What a servant. He had said this, he goes on ahead, and he's walking the whole way up to Jerusalem in front. See, moms, but not just moms, just people who want to love the Lord, who've been impacted by the Lord. He never takes you. Look, look at this, look at this. This should go with our Job study. He never takes you anywhere he's never been. You get that? Did I say that right? I'm a little tired. He, he, he never takes you somewhere and says, ah, you just do it. No, he's been tempted in all points like we were. He, he, he lived here and he suffered these indignities, the shame, the death, the tribulation, the suffering. But he goes first, which means, look, there's purpose in suffering. He has a purpose in the stuff you're going through that you, even though you might be hurt here or suffering here, your life is just for a moment because he has done everything so that you can get to heaven. Wow. So there's purpose in the pain. He goes before, and he goes up to Jerusalem, and it came to pass when he gets near to Bethpage and Bethany. Bethpage, those two little cities, just as you crest the top of the Mount of Olives, you get to this place called Olivet, the Mount of Olives. And when you get to the Mount of Olives, it's just so incredible. You just come up over the top, whew, and there she is, the whole vista of the old city of Jerusalem. You can just see it. I mean, you could just, it's just there. You, I mean, it's just so close. It's just there. It's not way out. It's just there. The Mount of Olives. And he knows. He sends two of his disciples saying, go into the village opposite you, where as you enter, you're going to find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Now listen to this, folks. Think about the scene. He's coming up over the Mount of Olives. He's got 12 at least, but more than 12, folks. There's other followers. And they're coming with him from Jerusalem and everywhere, or from Jericho up to Jerusalem, and everywhere you see, hear, smell, they're lambs. And he's been walking this 17 miles uphill 3,000 feet but he gets to this place and he goes I ain't walking anymore and guess what folks it's not because he's tired he's used to walking it's not because he's tired see that's the point you got to know he's not tired he's forcing the issue he's putting these people on trial so what he does is he says well we're going to go get a colt there's a big debate 
amongst the commentators, the theologians, did Jesus supply this thing supernaturally, the cult and the mother, which is in another gospel? Or did he work this out beforehand with some of his followers? And I would say the answer to that is yes. I think he's both. But, but whatever. He goes into the village opposite you, and he... Lambs bleeding, talking, people bringing them up to the temple areas to present the lambs that will be slain at Passover. They're all around, and the people, and the, the place is thronging with people. It's everywhere. This area from Mount of Olives to the temple is not very far, and it's not very big, really, for a massive city or for a big city. It's not a big city, I guess. There's, if you pack in two million there, you're packed. So he goes there, and he says, go find the colt on which no one has ever sat. Now you and I, and he... I'll skip ahead, and you know that the people are saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. That's Listen, folks, that blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord is from Psalm 118. And actually, here in Luke, he doesn't quote the prior verse, which speaks more of what you know, Hosanna in the highest. What does Hosanna mean? Come save us now or save us now. So get the picture. Tons of people. Walks up to the top, has some, uh, uh, you, you know, does some things with his friends back there in Bethany, but then when he gets ready to go, he goes and tells them to get the colt that he's arranged for. I'm not walking anymore. I'm going to ride. What was that saying? It was saying this 100%. You can look at it in Second Kings. Sometimes a king would ride a donkey during times of peace. But mostly when it was time to flex your political or powerful muscles, you didn't ride a donkey. You rode a horse, a steed, a stallion, a horse, and then had your chariots and things to show your power. Jesus is definitely saying to these people, I come in peace. Listen, listen, listen. And they all know it. You're fulfilling the prophet Zechariah. You're like, what? What am I talking about? Well, if you don't know where Zechariah is, it's okay. Just look in your table of contents. But it's not very hard. Just go to the beginning of the... Uh, New Testament or the end of the Old Testament and turn to Zechariah chapter 9. Now, when was Zechariah written? Zechariah was written in about 520 AD. Folks, I'm terrible at math, but that's around 552 years, I think. Sometimes I even mess it up when it's right in front of me. 550 years or so, listen, 550 years or so, this prophecy in Zechariah is given, and it's telling us about the coming king. I know I'm going round in circles, but I promise you I got a point. You probably don't believe it. <laughs> Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, listen to this. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you. 
He is just and having salvation, the one who has salvation. He will come to you. Listen, he's just and having salvation, and he's going to ride on a donkey, not just a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. How specific is that? Isn't that a baby boy? Yeah, that's a baby boy. Colt. Baby boy donkey, get it? <laughs> I had to look that up, by the way. I'm no farmer, but I had to look it up. But, but here it is. He was going to ride in a colt. There's a prophecy in Zechariah 9.9, you see, that is talking about Christ's coming, and he's going to come and ride in on a colt. But how about this? If you go over to Zechariah 14, you ready? You got to put on your thinking caps. Who likes to think? Who likes to, who hates their cell phones, wants to get rid of them and just think for a while? Yes, good. Then go over to verse 14, or excuse me, chapter 14, verse 4. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. And in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. And which faces Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west. Now, folks, in Zechariah, that's talking about two different days. But when you lived back in this time, you're trying to figure out who the Messiah is. And you say, okay, he's going to come on a colt. He's going to ride with salvation. And then it says he's going to plop down on the Mount of Olives. If you're Jewish and you're going to the Passover celebration that was instituted to memorialize the Exodus, and I'm putting the blood over the doorpost, that's how I think of the Exodus, and the angel of death will pass over and you'll be able to move out of Egypt back into the promised land, and they celebrated this God-ordained celebration. They're here during the Passover, and they know the prophecies. These people know the prophecies. They know their Bible, and they know that the Messiah is going to ride in on a colt, but they also know that he's going to plop himself down on the Mount of Olives, and look what it says later in that chapter. He's going to split the Mount of Olives, right? And then in verse 6, or at the end of verse 6, Thus the Lord my God will come, and all the saints with you, and it shall come to pass, there will be no light, the lights will diminish, it shall be one day which is known to the Lord, neither day or night, but at evening it will happen, that it will be light. And in that day it shall be that living waters shall flow from Jerusalem, half toward the eastern sea, half toward the western sea, in both summer and winter it's going to occur. And if you read over in verse 16 to the end, it says the nations are going to worship the king. Listen, and you could read that. Nations are going to worship the king. These Jews, during the time of Jesus, as he's riding in, don't miss this, they know Zechariah 9.9. They're like, wait a minute, he's riding a colt. He's doing what a king would do, not in his wartime powers, but in his peacetime powers, he's coming in on a, a colt, a donkey. We know that he's coming. Oh my, he's the one. But what would they immediately think? Chapter 14. So he's coming to erase Roman oppression and make us 
the nation among nations, and everybody will bow. All nations are going to bow at his feet. You see that? The problem is this prophecy is both the near fulfillment and the far fulfillment. The first prophecy in chapter 9 is his first coming. The second prophecy in chapter 14 is his second coming. But they didn't quite understand that. So when you go back to Luke, there's a lot of things other than just he rides down the hill going on. Are you catching that? Luke here, this amazing historian, is trying to tell you under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit what Jesus was trying to tell us is he's not just a king, Psalm 118, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, but he's the king. He's the king. He's the king. This is the one. Loose it and bring it here. And if anyone uh, asks you, why are you loosing it? Thus you shall say to him, because the Lord has need of it. Now, I circled that in my Bible, and here's why. I can't believe, can you, that the Lord has need of anything. And yet, right here in the scriptures, it says it two times in three verses or two or three verses. In verse 34, it says, yeah, the Lord says he has need of him, the need of the colt. What in the world? I thought he was God. Yes, he is God. I thought he was man. Yes, he is man. He's the perfect God-man. And some reason, some way, listen, here comes purpose into your life, mom, dad, anybody. For some reason, I, I don't know why. He laid down his rights to his privileges and deity. That says Philippians 2, but he never stopped being God. He always was and always is God. He laid them down while he was here. Catch this. And he chose, he chose for some reason. I don't know why. I kind of do, but to use us to get his word out. He used these two, listen, two Disciples who we don't even really know who they were. If, if you were one of the disciples, this is like a Seinfeld episode, and you read the transcript, wouldn't you want to say, hey, could you put my name in there? You know what I'm saying? Here these are, they don't get their name in lights, but to the Lord, look how important it is. They're showing us that God is sovereign over all things, over all things. He can even use a donkey. He uses us, the people. Do you remember this? He asked a little boy if he could use his lunch. And the little boy offered it up, and he fed all these massive amounts of people. And then even in that, those stories about feeding the four and the 5,000, do you remember? He asked his, his followers to come and get the food from him. See, in Jesus' deity, I mean, he could have made some food appear, folks. But he didn't. He asked them to come to him and get the food. He was asking us to distribute to the needs of people. He uses you. You've got purpose. It doesn't matter. I mean, serving food was important to Christ. Going and getting a colt was a part in the drama of life. 
Just going over to the next village, asking the people, just do what I ask, okay? He doesn't say it probably like I'd say it. Just do what I ask. You'll be participating. Go get the colt. Untie it. Tell them you're, I'm the one that told you. They'll let you bring it back. They're memorialized forever without their names, which is an important thing. Stick that there for a second. He has need of it, folks. He can use anything. He used even, look, look, look at this. Isn't this kind of an interesting thing to think about? He used, even used, when he was dead, a rich man's tomb that had never been used. Whoo! So you have that, and you go, well, wait a minute. The Lord has need. Okay. Then they bring him to Jesus, and they throw their own clothes on the colt, and they set Jesus on him. Now, you know this, right? If you read the other accounts... In all four Gospels, it's rare that anything's in the all four Gospels, so it's really important. It's in all four Gospels, and if you read them together, see, coats in the Old Testament, there's some evidence of when a king would ride, they'd put their coat to make, make like a pathway for him, and what the people were saying is, I put myself under you. I'll put my coat down, something that's very valuable to me. I'll sacrifice it for you. You can get it muddy, the, the, the horse or the chariot or whatever. So some would put their coats. Some put their coats on the donkey. Others went and got branches, if you read all the account. Some of them put the branches in the road. Some of them waved them, apparently, although it doesn't explicitly say that, but probably did that. And they said, Hosanna in the highest, this is the king, which means, listen to this, the king, what would that evoke in a Jewish mind? Well, the king was David, and God made a covenant, 2 Samuel 7, with the Davidic line that the Messiah would come as a king from David's line. So what these people are saying in response back to him, even though it's a colt, even though it may be muddy, even that, that they had to take off their coat and use palm branches, what they're saying is, son of David, King David's line, Messiah, save us. Whoo, man. So they threw their clothes on the colt, and as he went, many spread their clothes on the ground. You see that. This one is not going to walk. This is a, an announcement. Do you get it? This is a proclamation. This isn't, oh, the wheels fall off, fell off and they found me. I'm out of, everything's out of control now. This is purposeful. And as he drew, he, the whole multitude of the, of the disciples began to rejoice. Now, Several people ask me when we get to this, or maybe a few people, who is the multitude? Well, let's talk about that. If you looked over at John chapter 12, we're not going to, or you can just write it down and we'll, you can read it for yourself, or John chapter 18. See, it tells us there are people following him over the hill, but as he looks over the hill and he starts coming down the hill, in John chapter 12, verse 12 and verse 18, the people inside the temple area or on the temple mount come out to meet him. I don't think people know that very much. Maybe you do, and I'm just wrong. <laughs> but are you catching me? So he's got his followers, but then people come outside of, uh, uh, outside of the temple area who are visitors 
participating in the feast, John chapter 12, verse 12 and verse 18 are coming out. And then there's some local people, John chapter 12, verse 17, who saw the miracle that I haven't discussed yet of raising Lazarus from the dead. You could read it there. And then you have, of course, these religious leaders who have said they want to kill him. They wanted to seize and execute him, and they were afraid to do it during the Passover because they thought it might trigger a riot, but that's what they do. And listen, listen, they're afraid to do it. Do you catch that? They don't want to trigger a riot. And Jesus says, finally, you guys have been scratching your head all throughout the gospel. So have I. You're going to have to make a decision now. That's what he says in this ride over the hill. You have to make a decision now. What else do you see when you see that cult? That's interesting. That has never been ridden before. Do you know this, folks? In Isaiah 11, do you want to turn there? Isaiah, just look in your... Look in your um, Concordance, just go back to 11. You'll know this verse very well. Or these verses very well. Isaiah 11. There's going to come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse. That's talking of the Davidic dynasty in verse 1. And a branch shall grow out of his roots, and the spirit of Lord shall rest upon him, and the spirit of wisdom and understanding, of counsel, might, knowledge, and fear. His delight is in the fear of the Lord. In fact, in John 4, 34, it says, My food is to do, Jesus said, My food is to do the will of God, the Father, who sent me, and to finish his work. This is speaking of the Messiah, is what I'm trying to tell you. And he's going to reign, look in verse 4, with righteousness, he'll judge. Uh, the poor and decide with equity for the meek. He'll strike the earth with the breath of his lips. Righteousness shall be the the belt of his loins. And then this really fascinating, folks, verse. All of you love to put it up at Christmas time. I think we even have an ornament with this on there. And the wolf shall also dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. The calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. Speaking of the babe who came in the manger, there's something about his reign. Listen to this. The Bible tells us when man sinned, all things went into travail. The earth is groaning. Relationships have been distorted. And something apparently happened here too. But when Jesus comes back to the earth the second time and establishes his rule and reign, there's going to be this place where the animals, listen, listen, are no longer scared. Seriously. They're no longer scared. You ever been around a mean dog? He's mean because he's scared. (laughs) Right? They're timid around you at the beginning. Why would anything strike you in the wild? Because they're scared. They're worried. You're like, okay, that's enough. I give up. What are you getting at? Go back 
to chapter 19. Jesus now finds a colt and says, I'll ride that one. Folks, listen, I don't know about you, but me, I don't want to ride a young horse that's never been ridden because I don't know how, and I'll break my head. He'll buck me off. It'll be awful. Anybody know what I'm talking about? But here Jesus says, I want you to go to the colt that's never been ridden. Oh, man, you're not getting where I'm going here. You see, I don't believe Jesus broke the colt. I believe there's something about Jesus (laughs) where he calmed this colt of its fear. And the Bible says, listen to this, perfect love casts out phobias. What do you mean phobias? Because in the Greek, fear is phobia. What I think's happening here is Jesus says, you get that colt. It's going to be a picture to the world that I'm the king, I'm the Messiah, but also there's going to be another picture. It's never been ridden, and it'll ride for me. And not only that, there's going to be massive amounts of people. Folks, there's two million people in this city. Would you want to ride your newly given colt through the crowd? It would spook it, but it never did. (laughs) Perfect love casts out fear. How did he heal this colt or get this colt to do it? I don't think it was by breaking it. I think it was by his love and calmness and nature and gentleness. And he's telling you, listen, if you put Jesus in the saddle, so to speak, what could a Christian ever be fearful of? If you exclusively worship Christ, and put him or give him the keys to your life or the reins to your life and put him there and don't put anything else on your life. Perfect love casts out fear. It's not what he gives you. Listen, how do we keep ourselves together? It's not what he gives you. It's who he is that brings you to the place where you're restored and your fears are gone. (laughs) And here he is on the Mount of Olives. Here's this whole multitude. I told you who the multitude probably was. They rejoice and praise God with a loud voice. They rejoice so much, they even recite Psalm 118. Psalm 113 through 18 are these, what are called Egypt Hallels. There are these psalms that are like, thank you, Lord, for getting us out of Egypt. Isn't that interesting? Picture of sin in the Bible. And here he says, blessed is the king, the king, who comes in the name of the Lord. Or the people say this, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Folks, when he first came, the angels proclaimed peace on earth. But they rejected the Messiah There's currently, folks, no peace on earth. Just watch the news except in the hearts of Christians. But there is currently peace in heaven. 
When he comes back a second time in Revelation 19, not on a donkey, but on a white stallion with us, his army, there will be peace. <laughs> and some of the Pharisees called to them. They, yeah, they, they get it. See, the Pharisees know. He's just made us choose. He's made us choose here. Teacher, rebuke your disciples. You know what irritates the enemy, folks? Is when you praise, even when you don't know all the circumstances. Because, see, circumstances are this, up and down. But when you praise the Lord just for who the Lord is from, oh, just who He is, not because He gave you the bonus. That's great, praising for that, but not just that. Because if you live your life just praising him for the things he gives or he doesn't give, you'll be a roller coaster Christian. But if you praise him for who he is, just the beauty of who he is, we sang it today. Look at this. It'll silence. It'll irritate the enemy. But he answered and said to them, <laughs> so interesting, folks. So interesting. What in the world does this mean that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Well, there's places in the, uh, um, the Psalms and the prophets that do describe that the trees are going to clap. Don't you go, what is that all about? The mountains will sing. You're like, what, what, is, what is all that about? I tell you that if these should keep silent, if these should keep silent, well, the stones will immediately cry out. Well, there's a lot of things that people talk about with respect to uh, what this means. Ray Steadman says this, pretty interesting. What our Lord is saying here is that there are truths with which God wants his children to proclaim. Look, I'm going to be away. I want you to work and invest while I'm gone. You have the gospel. You have time. Use it wisely. I've now entered in. There are those who are praising me. The enemy says, shut up. That's what they're saying here. Quit it. And Jesus says, the stones will cry out. Why? God wants his children to proclaim the goodness of the Lord because they are the ones best fitted to do it. They understand the mighty works of God as well as anyone can. They know it is who is, who is behind these things. They understand the meaning of these events. They're the ones set apart by God to proclaim these great truths and to help the world see God's mighty work and understand what he's doing. But what if they won't do it? What then? Jesus says the stones will cry out. That is... That which is not designed for the, this purpose, which is not particularly prepared for it, will begin to utter these truths. Will begin to utter these truths. Other commentators believe, and this is a fascinating thought, when Jesus is the ruler of your life, the gospel comes into your life and makes even the trees and the mountains speak and proclaim of him, what more could he do with you, a human, a life that has the Spirit of God come into them, how much more they come alive 
You see where zeal comes from? It doesn't come from conjuring up stuff. It comes from knowing who the Lord is. That's it. That's the whole message. And as he gets here, he sees the city and he weeps over it, saying, if you had known, even you, especially in, this, in your day, now i got to take you one other place. Known what? Known the time of your visitation. What are you talking about, Lord? Well, see, to a Jew, they would know these things. There's this book called Daniel. Why don't you turn over there? There's this book called Daniel, and it's in chapter 9, okay? There's this book called Daniel. It's in chapter 9. I'll give you a little bit to get there. I'm getting there, sorry. And this is fascinating. And then we'll go. <laughs> Sorry, I'm having trouble getting in between here. Oh my gosh. What'd you got? I'm thinking about the next thing. 1142. Man, she's a genius. Look at this in verse 25. I actually go up to verse 24. There's this prophecy in the book of Daniel called 70 weeks prophecy. 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand that from, know and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. In other, 60, in other words, 69 weeks of seven years. Trust me on this. We'll do it at another time when we go to Daniel, which is 483 years. Here Daniel predicts that there's going to be a declaration to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. And if you've been traveling with us on Wednesday, you'll know it was wrecked in 70 AD. He actually alludes to it in Psalm, or Luke 19. Don't fall away on this one. And Daniel said, even though it'll be wrecked, there's going to be a decree. That decree came in 445 BC that 69 weeks or 483 years after the decree to go re rebuild Jerusalem or 173,880 days from the time that the decree was given to go rebuild it, the Messiah will present himself. And that day, folks, if you take the Jewish calendar, is the day of the triumphal entry. The exact day. By the way, I'm so excited about this. I'm a geek. Those calculations were made by a guy named Sir Robert Anderson in a book called The Coming Prince. I couldn't find it forever, but I got my hands on it. And the calculations are fascinating. So you see... He's saying, if you had known, if you had read your Bible, if you had paid attention, if you had done the calculation in your day, 
it would have been peaceful, but now these things are going to be hidden from your eyes because there's going to be a day when your enemies are going to be an embankment around it. And that actually happened 38 years later from the time this was written when General Titus, a Roman general, surrounded the city and basically choked it off and then went in and wrecked it and killed many, many people. It was a mass slaughter. And level you and your children within you to the ground and they'll not leave. You understand why Jesus was crying? God himself brings judgment and will judge, but you see that there's love tied to judgment right here. He has to be perfectly fair, but he's also perfectly loved. Then he goes into the temple. You say, what's this all about? As we close, listen to this. He goes into the temple and begins to drive out those who bought and sold in it. Remember, he did it once before. He does it at the end. Why does he do it at the end here, folks? Think about this. What is he driving out? There's this outer court of the temple. Do you guys know this? It's where the Gentiles could go, and it's where that the Jews could witness to the Gentiles, non-Jews. And in that courtyard, they had two things going on that were really two things that God hated. One, they had to pay a tax. And if you brought your source of money... The temple tax guys would look and go, hmm, you don't have the right currency. We can do the exchange for you. The problem was the exchange rate was criminal. You also brought your lambs. Remember the lambs I was telling you about? You brought them up there and they'd say, hmm, boy, not very spotless, but I got a model for you. Let's change it out. And of course, when they did it, they would rip off the people. And this ticked Jesus off. Why? Listen, here's why, here's why, as we close. Here's why. Because it gave people a distorted image of who God is. And it also kept, it was an impediment, it kept people from God. God's heart is for all, that none would perish. And when we do things that are religious sounding, that keep people away from the glorious grace of the gospel. God hates it. And Jesus here drove them out, drives them out, and he says, isn't it interesting, my house is a house of sermons. No, he doesn't say that. He says, God's house is a house of prayers. And what do den of thieves mean? It means those people who are ripping people off are hiding in it. Are you catching this? And he was teaching daily in the temple. He was teaching, he was teaching daily in the temple. By, by the way, folks, interesting, he gets those people who are selling the weird lambs, or not the weird lambs, but their own lambs, you know, he, he issues them out. The people with coins on it that had stamps of images of others, he gets them out of the temple, and look what he does. He replaces them. He stays there all week, and he teaches. What do you think he was teaching about? He was teaching about himself. You see how radical and dangerous this is, and bold and courageous? He knows they want to kill him, and he goes right there, right then, and he teaches the gospel. Whoa. When we have the Spirit of God in our life, look at this, as he's replaced those things that 
aren't to be in our lives with himself, when you make him the Lord of your life, not just, look, not just dabbling in it, not just coming to church and saying, yeah, I did my duty. No, no, no. You make him the one in the saddle, the one with the keys, the one in the temple that you are, in your temple. He's the one. All those other things go out, and you give him, and you listen to what he gives you. His mind, his mind is boldly gentle and gently bold. People need to know the gospel, and he did it to his dying breath, and they sought to destroy him and were unable to do anything, for all the people were very attentive to hear him. Now, you're saying, wait a minute. You said you were going to tie this to Mother's Day. (laughs) What do you mean this can keep me together? Well, I kind of gave away the store a little bit, but I think what Jesus is saying is, watch this. You're either going to kill me in this story or you're just going to kind of tolerate me and dance around me and just kind of put up with me. And I think what Jesus is saying to us is you're either going to surrender to who I am. You can't just be lukewarm. I give you no room for that. I spit the lukewarmness out of my mouth. It's like vomit. That's what Jesus says. And you know that many of these people, and I know people here always ask me at this time, did these people reject him? Well, the Bible tells us later when he gets in front of Pontius Pilate, do you remember this? Not only the chief priests, but the people also say, crucify him. It had to have been some of these people, I'm not saying all, but some of them who on the first of the week were saying, oh, hail, Hosanna, praise to the Lord, within a few days are saying, crucify him. Why is that? Here's why. Because they didn't love the Lord just for who he was. They wanted him to overthrow those Romans and bring that nation to prominence then, not at a later time, and when Jesus disappointed them, quote-unquote, they cried, crucify him. How do we keep it together? How do we keep it together? Here's how we keep it together. We, uh, be, we're humble abiders who love the Lord for simply who he is. What's the key to zeal? I hate keys. It's loving the Lord for who he is. And when he doesn't do what you expect him or want him to do, remember, he's God, you're not. I'm not God, he's God. I came to serve him, he didn't come to serve me. I was created for him, he wasn't created for me. It makes everything different. So when you wake up in the mornings, you know, typically you have the list. Lord, bless my job. Make sure I get that bonus. Uh, is the Christmas club up to speed so I got enough presents? Um, I don't want any problems at work. Uh, don't have any problems in relationships, Lord, because you know how much I hate problems with relationships. And everything else just make really nice and wonderful. Thanks, Lord. <laughs> when really, as we get up in the morning, it's just like, 
Lord, I'm reporting for duty. I'm here just for who you are. Send me anywhere you'd like me to go to do anything you'd like me to do. And that's more than enough. Let's pray. Well, Lord, uh, we do. We come to you this morning. Lord, just to give our lives back to you again and again and again. Just what else could we do? (laughs) It's just our reasonable service to lay our lives down for you. You're the one, Lord, who's done it all. Here you say to us, I think you have to make a choice. And it's a radical choice. It's taking up a cross. We know this, Lord. Help us to live that out, taking up cross daily, not just sometimes, daily. Lord, help us. Fill us afresh. Give us the resource and strength to go out into the world and to love and serve a world that doesn't even want to be loved and served and doesn't even know it. Lord, help us to... Be servants without receiving thanks from people, but just knowing that you're our Lord and are pleased with what we're doing. May that just be enough, Lord. May you help us to learn more and more each day what it is to love you for who you are and not for the gifts you give. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.